this evening I, I want to um, uh, introduce this matter of the work. Um, I'd like to just say one or two things at the very outset. Um, the first is that I'm going to think aloud uh, rather than um, uh, give um, uh, a clearly defined um, study. I've always found that when the Lord is beginning to show something to one, uh, it is impossible to explain it clearly. This is my experience. I don't know whether it's uh, others. Um, when the Lord shows something to one clearly, I find that although one sees it for oneself clearly, it is impossible for a while to define it. Sometimes I find normally in the past about a year or two must go um, before I can actually begin to define what it is um, that um, the Lord has shown. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to think aloud. We're going to go through a number of scriptures. Um, I'm going to think about them, um, provoke you uh, by uh, making suggestions uh, and uh, comments uh, and so on. I haven't given you any questions and I'll tell you why. And quite a few folk have spoken to me about this matter of the work. And um, they have said uh, to me that, oh, they're so anxious that we should get to it and that we should really um, deal with it and be able to talk about it together, not just me speaking, but that we might be able to talk about it together, ask questions. Now, we have only one more uh, time um, before these this course comes to its end. And um, what I'm going to suggest is this. I'm going to introduce the matter of the work. And uh, then next week we will have perhaps a time together where we draw up some of the um, uh, tie-up, if you like, some of the loose ends over the whole time. And then um, in the autumn, uh, we will have one or two uh, special times on the matter of the work when we will uh, perhaps uh, give questions and we'll um, um, go into it uh, a little more thoroughly. Now, maybe you disagree with that. Well, you'll have to tell me afterwards uh, about it. We'll just see. Now, the matter of the work and the churches. Superficially, uh, the New Testament uh, seems to reveal one great movement. If we look at the book of Acts, if we look at the epistles and so on, it just seems to us as if there's one tremendous movement. One thing that is manifest is authority and life in every part of that movement. We find it spreading from Jerusalem spreading out through Judea and Samaria and then right through the uh, Roman Empire. Everywhere we find uh, people being saved, not only Jews, but Gentiles. And then we begin to find that the Gentiles are outnumbering the Jews. Uh, yet there is no division. There's no such thing as Hebrew Christians and Gentile Christians and churches for Hebrew Christians and churches for Gentile Christians. There is only one church, and wherever we go, we find it. In some localities, the church is meeting in a house. 
in other in other localities um, they are unable to meet in a house there are too many of them so it's one church but they're meeting in two or three houses uh, in in for instance Jerusalem where we have at least 3,000 believers they evidently met in quite a number of houses and met almost daily in the temple in Solomon's porch uh, to pray together and fellowship together. Yet it was always, from beginning to end of the New Testament era, the church at Jerusalem. It was never the churches at Jerusalem. So this, we have this one great spiritual movement born from above. And uh, it seems to, uh, as it were, uh, move onward in every part um, of the empire and beyond the Roman Empire, uh, too, in places like Babylon and places uh, such as that, we find this great movement. Just, if you like, the churches. Everywhere we find the Church of God divided only into locality. And we find, uh, superficially, if we look at the New Testament, that uh, from the churches there are those who've got anointed ministries. We find an Apollos here on his journey, and we find that Aquila and Priscilla bump into him, listen to him with rapt attention, and seize upon him as someone that they feel can be more um, adequately uh, instructed in a more adequate way. We find the Apostle Paul moving in another direction. We find um, the Peter and John moving in another direction. They're all, they seem to cross each other's paths. They seem to sometimes be together. Sometimes they're not so much together. Um, but wherever we turn, we find people moving hither and thither. We find Philip, for one moment, is a deacon in the church at Jerusalem. The next moment, he's an evangelist um, in Samaria, uh, uh, his ministry being attended by the most extraordinary authority and power, so that nearly everyone in Samaria seems to be turning to the Lord. Uh, so it goes on, um, uh, wherever we look. Now, it seems to be just one great movement with a lot of people moving hither and thither, uh, uh, preaching, working, ministering. But it's, that is only superficial. A more serious study, a closer study of the book of the Acts and indeed the New Testament uh, reveals something vitally necessary uh, to our understanding uh, in the Lord's recovery and rebuilding of his church. If we are to see the Lord really recovering his testimony in his people and rebuilding the church, then um, we have got to understand what it is that lies behind this tremendous movement of the Spirit um, of God. Indeed, I think we could say this, that it has been, because there has not 
let me put it this way. Because there has not been clear definition at this point, there has resulted so much confusion amongst uh, Christians and so much loss. We know you just take, for instance, the tremendous missionary endeavor. I mean, no one's going to deride or despise missionary endeavor or work. It has been tremendous and it has been costly. There have been thousands who have left it. It, it is the easiest thing in the world to, to, to deride missionaries as if they're simply do-gooders, forgetting that there are the very great majority who have left everything for the Lord's sake and given themselves completely and utterly to him. That devotion far outweighs anything else and indeed has been, if you like, the, re the, the sort of um, um, uh, reserve, if you like, but from which the Lord has done so much in later years. But think of the loss and the confusion that has resulted in missionary work and endeavor because this point of the work and the churches has never been sufficiently understood or defined. For instance, you find this kind of thing. Here comes uh, a missionary. They come into an area. They settle down. They have a house. They, this is the old days I'm talking about, not so much now. They build a compound. Uh, they start to preach. They get in people uh, as uh, servants, one or two people, and they're normally the first people who've got, who get saved. And so starts a little work. Who pastors the work? The missionary. Who looks after the finance? The missionary used to be said in the old days that you could never, for instance, they used to say, could never let the Chinese look after the finances. Otherwise, you wouldn't see the finances. That was what was so often said. This is the kind of thing uh, that happened. Now, the result was that the work never, ever um, put it this way. The, the church never ever came into being. You had a work which remained a work from its beginning to its end. It's as simple as that. And then, of course, there have been other um, moves we believe of truly of God, but uh, because there has been, at least in my poor estimation, uh, 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 an uh, lack in understanding of the difference between the work and the church. Uh, such work, such groups, such companies have never been able to understand are we a work or are we the church? What are we? Now it may seem to you that we're being just legalistic, but we aren't. We need to be able to clearly understand what we are. Are we a church? Are we a work? Can a work and a church coexist? In what way do they overlap? In what way must they be forever 
set apart, uh, differentiated, if you like, distinguished one from the other. This is uh, the matter we're looking at this evening. Well, now, I want you to take your Bibles, and we're going to go through quite a number of uh, references. As we go through them, I will make some comments, and then I, later I shall um, draw out one or two things that are based upon these scriptures. First of all, Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 8 and verse 14. Now, when the apostles that were at Jerusalem... Now, mark you, it does not say, now when the church, which was at Jerusalem, nor does it say, now when the elders that were at Jerusalem, yet we know there were both the church and the elders at Jerusalem. It says, now when the apostles that were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John. Now the same chapter, verse 5, and Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed unto them the Christ. Verse 26. But an angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza. The same is desert. Verse 40. But Philip was found at Azotus. And passing through, he preached the gospel to all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Now, it's rather, rather interesting. Philip doesn't seem to be, um, he's involved with Peter and John. And the strange thing is, he preaches the gospel, and yet somehow or other, um, they won't leave him to it. Peter and John have to come down. And Peter and John have to, as it were, supervise something which is rather interesting. Yet Philip is absolutely free. For it says that when the Lord said go, he went. He didn't evidently write a note to Peter and John uh, uh, back at Jerusalem and say, shall I uh, go to uh, uh, Gaza? And as far as we know from the record, he didn't even um, uh, ask uh, the church that was at Samaria what he should do. You see, it's rather interesting. He just, uh, uh, it seems, at any rate, taking just the record, he went. Chapter 13, verse 1. 1 to 5. Chapter 13, 1 to 5. Now, there were at Antioch in the church that was there prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, it's called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manion, the foster brother of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. And um, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. Then, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So they, being sent forth by the Holy Spirit, went down to Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. And when they were at Salamis, 
they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews, and they had also John as their attendant. So now we have a group of men, they're not called elders, they're called prophets and teachers that were at the church in um, uh, Antioch, and it was to them that the Holy Spirit said, separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I call them. Then it says, they laid hands on them. They, were, they went out being sent forth of the Holy Spirit, it says. Uh, they went. Now, they took John. So you have uh, Barnabas and Saul and John, a little group that are moving together um, for a while. Now, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, verse 4. We find that now, quite a while later, the work has grown, and there are quite a few associated with the Apostle Paul. And they had accompanied him as far as Asia, Sophita of Berea, the son of Pyrrhus, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derbe, and Timothy, and of Asia, Tychicus and Trophimus. But these had gone before and were waiting for us at Troas. Uh, verse 6, And we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread and came unto them to Troas in five days, where we tarried seven days. Then verse 34, Ye yourselves know that these hands ministered unto my necessities and to them that were with me. Now we begin to see, at least in the, with the Apostle Paul, a group of those associated with him. And financially, they were not dependent officially on any church or any churches. But uh, they sought just to walk before God. We know in one or two cases that Paul acknowledged gifts that were sent uh, to them. Uh, but he sought to work also with his own hands. Now, if you go back to chapter 17 and verse 14 and 15, and then immediately the brethren sent forth Paul to go as far as to the sea, and Silas and Timothy abode there still. But they that conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timothy that they should come to him with all speed, they departed. All right. Now, will you turn to some of the letters? 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So evidently, Paul now and again commanded some of them, Silas and Timothy. Um, he sent a word of command to them that they were to come immediately uh, to him. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ of the will of God and Sosthenes. Now, we don't know hardly anything about Sosthenes. We only know that he was evidently one of the workers associated with the apostle Paul. Sosthenes, our brother. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 10. Now, if Timothy comes, see that he be with you without fear, for he worketh the work of the Lord as I also do. Let no man therefore despise him, but set him forward on his journey in peace, that he may come unto me, for I expect him with the brethren. Verse 12. 
But as touching Apollos, the brother, I like this, but as touching Apollos, the brother, I besought him much to come unto you with the brethren, and it was not at all his will to come now. But he will come when he shall have opportunity. Um, so evidently, although the Apostle Paul sometimes commanded people to come and so on, uh, it, there was no nothing official about it. He evidently sought to persuade Apollos um, to come, but it was not at all uh, his will uh, to come at that point. Now look at Colossians. Colossians chapter 3, verse 7 to 9. Uh, no, I don't think that can be Colossians 3, 7 to 9. It must be Colossians 4. Colossians 4, 7 all my affairs shall Tychicus, we've already heard of him before, make known unto you, the beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for this very purpose, that ye may know our state and that he may comfort your hearts, together with Onesimus, the faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They shall make known unto you all things that are done here. Then he goes on, verse 10. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. Now you remember they had an argument over Mark. Uh, Mark was with them at the beginning, John Mark, as attendant, as helper. And then they had a row over him, and Barnabas and uh, Paul parted company and became two separate companies of workers. Barnabas took Mark, and Paul then linked up with Timothy and Silas and some of uh, the others. But now they're back again. Touching whom you received commandments. If he come unto you, receive him. Evidently some who felt that Paul had put him under discipline didn't feel they could touch poor old Mark. And uh, Jesus, that is called Justice, who are of the circumcision, these only are my fellow workers under the kingdom of God, men that have been a comfort unto me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, saluteth you, always striving for you in his prayers, that ye may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he hath much labor for you and for them in Laodicea and for them in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas salute you. So here we have another group, some we've already heard of before, but they're evidently associated with the Apostle Paul. Now, Philippians chapter 1, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus that are at Philippi. Paul and Timothy. Chapter 4 of Philippians, verse 21, Salute every saint in Christ Jesus, the brethren that are with me salute you. The brethren that are with me salute you. Galatians, back to Galatians, chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, Paul an apostle. Verse 2, and all the brethren that are with me. Now he wasn't talking about a particular church. He meant all the brothers in the work that are with me. Paul, an apostle, and all the brethren that 
are with me unto the churches of Galatia. Uh, then if you could turn to Philemon. Philemon. Verse 23. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, saluteth thee. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. So we have a little list there. Epaphras, Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. Um, back to 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Silvanus, that's another um, form of Silas, actually. Always remember that. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy unto the church of the Thessalonians. Those three. Then to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 9 to 12. Give diligence to come shortly unto me. For Demas forsook me, having loved this present world, and went to Thessalonica. So that's one of the fellow workers who fell, by the way. Crescens to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is useful to me for ministry. But Tychicus I sent to Ephesus. Uh, then um, yes, that's all. Oh, then there's twenty and twenty-one. Yes, there's twenty and twenty-one. Now this is interesting. It's it's the very human Apostle Paul here. Um, Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left at Miletus sick. Give diligence to come before winter. Eubulus saluteth thee, and Pudens, and Linus, and Claudia, and all the brethren. Now that's rather interesting because Claudia is the first lady. Claudia is the first lady. So evidently there was a lady amongst the fellow workers. Whether it was a wife of one or whether she was um, a single lady who had joined in the work, we don't know, but that is um, the first that we know with the Apostle Paul, who was a lady worker. Um, also, will you note that twice the Apostle Paul says, uh, give diligence to come. Uh, it's very interesting when you start to look right through the scripture, how sometimes the Apostle Paul commands someone to come, other times he says, do please come. Other times he seeks to persuade someone and they won't come at all. Um, it's rather interesting. Uh, then Titus, chapter 1, verse 5. Now, here is a more authoritarian note. For this cause I left thee in Crete, to Titus. For this cause I left thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that were wanting and appoint elders in every city. Now, we have not mentioned this in what we've said about churches. 
But this is one of the uh, scriptures used for what we call church ground. Elders in every city. You note it? Not in every church, but every city. One church, one locality. Um, chapter 3, verse 12 and 13. When I shall send Artemis unto thee, or Tychicus, give diligence to come unto me to Nicopolis, for there I have determined to winter. Set forward Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey diligently, that nothing be wanting unto them. Um, then to Peter. Now, one or two rather interesting sidelights. Now, perhaps some of them are a little bit amusing, I don't know. Um, depending on how you look at it. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15 and 16. Now it is quite clear that you have quite a number of uh, um, companies in the work associated with various, should we put it this way, particularly anointed uh, ministries or servants of the Lord. Now here in uh, chapter 3 of 2 Peter, verse 15, we have a very interesting little sidelight when the Apostle Peter writes. He says this, And account of the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, wherein are some things hard to be understood which the ignorant and unsteadfast rest as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. One can't help feeling that Peter found the Apostle Paul sometimes a little beyond him. That seems so. But there you remember, of course, that it was the Apostle Peter that the Apostle Paul withstood to his face uh, on one occasion, yet they still recognize one another as um, or appointed and ordained of God uh, with authority uh, from heaven. Um, now turn to Galatians uh, chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, verse 7 to 9. Now I have given you these scriptures because it seems to me quite clear that there are spheres uh, which God gives to certain workers. Um, and whilst those spheres overlap often, and uh, uh, one worker or group of workers can come right into the other sphere, yet there seems to be a sphere. Now here we've got it here. But contrarywise, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel of the uncircumcision, even as Peter with the gospel of the circumcision, for he that wrought for Peter under the apostleship of the circumcision, wrought for me also unto the Gentiles. And when they perceived the grace that was given unto me, James and Cephas and John, they who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship. In other words, you've got these two distinct works in one way, within the work. Uh, James 
Kephas, John, who felt called to the circumcision, that is to the Hebrew, those with the Hebrew background, and uh, Paul, Barnabas and Paul, who felt called to those with a Gentile background. Only they would that we should remember the poor, which very thing I was zealous to do. Then 2 Corinthians chapter 10, a rather interesting sidelight in this matter. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. But we will not glory beyond our measure. Now, what does he mean? We will not glory beyond our measure. Our spiritual measure? Personal measure of the Lord? No, listen. This is what he means. But according to the measure of the province, which God apportioned to us as a measure, to reach even unto you. For we stretch not ourselves over much, as though we reach not unto you, for we came even as far as unto you in the gospel of Christ, not glorying beyond our measure, that is, in other men's labors. But having hope that as your faith groweth, we shall be magnified in you according to our province, unto further abundance, so as to preach the gospel even unto the parts beyond you, and not to glory in another's province in regard of things ready to our hands. Isn't that a most interesting side? And in another place, in Romans 15, you can look it up yourselves, um, the Apostle Paul says, um, I've come all the way from Jerusalem to Illyricum, which was part of Yugoslavia now, um, preaching the gospel, but wherever I went, I sought not to, to uh, do anything on another man's foundation. So there were provinces, or rules, um, areas, spheres, and he said, you were in our sphere. And we hope that by really seeing God do something in your midst, in the sphere which he has given us, we may be able to extend the sphere beyond you and preach the gospel beyond you. Released from you, having seen something done in you, we can move on further. You see, quite interesting. And then lastly, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 5 to 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 to 10. Here's where the Apostle Paul argues that there can be many different ministries as far as the church is concerned, but it is all to the same end, and it is the same God uh, who undertakes. Verse 5. What then is Apollos, and what is Paul? Ministers, through whom ye believe, and each as the Lord gave to him. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. But each shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. Now listen to this. For we are God's fellow workers. Ye are God's husbandry, God's building. Now that's a key in our understanding of what the work is about. Work, the work, fellow workers, ye are God's building, God's husbandry. Now what can we say about this matter of the work? A lot of scriptures there. I don't know whether they make a lot of sense to you. 
such a large number of them. One thing I think we can say straight away, the book of the Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, however you like to call it, seems to differentiate between the churches and the work. It seems to quite clearly differentiate between those two things. For instance, if you turn to um, Acts chapter 13, verse 2, the verse we read, we read this, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, unto the work whereunto I have called them. The work whereunto I have called them. Now, is this just meant to be understood in the sense, I call them to a work? Or is there something more specific uh, behind this use of the word? Look at 14, chapter 14, verse 26. And thence they sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been committed to the grace of God for the work which they had fulfilled. And then again, chapter 15 and verse 38, we read this. But Paul thought not good to take with them him who withdrew from, from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. Now, it seems to me quite clear that the church is local in its expression. But the work is regional. It's as simple as that. In other words, no work is local. No church is regional. The church is local. The work is regional. Maybe that can help you a little. It's hard to put it clearly into words. What we find is this. We find the church everywhere expressed locally in the New Testament. Then we find the work expressed overall um, with a kind of regional responsibility. You have Jerusalem with a responsibility. There are work centered in Jerusalem and the John and Peter and the others extending far beyond that area. Judea and Samaria, the whole of that area came under the responsibility of that work. Then we find from Antioch another work coming up from Antioch, not going to Judea and Samaria. They never went that way, but moving up the coast all the way through the Roman province of Syria. And uh, all that we know, for instance, later of Greece, uh, places we, we know now, Thessalonica, Corinth, Athens, Ephesus, Laodicea, Pergamon, Thyatira, all these places we know where there were uh, churches. Um, you've got two quite clear um, uh, uh, areas, regions, if you like. Barnabas took Mark and sailed off to Cyprus. And there, if you like, you have another region uh, where he was um, responsible. We know no more of Barnabas. He sails right out of the record. Nor do we know too much about Apollos, except that he seemed to move uh, in uh, more or less the same sphere as the Apostle Paul and could be the Apollos that Paul mentions once or twice uh, in his letters. Now, it, therefore, I think we have to get quite clear that, again, let me put it quite clear this way, the church is local, the work is regional. 
That's the first thing we must get clear. And then secondly, I, perhaps we find the term, the work, rather confusing. A rather sort of, um, is it so scriptural? We take it just from this one word or two in the book of the Acts. But what else can we call it? We can call it the wider work, if you like, because the work is something which describes uh, work wider than the local church. It is not just limited to the local church. It's between the churches, beyond a church, and extends to perhaps many others, and to areas where there is no church. I'm thinking now of New Testament or a missionary um, area. Does that make it any clearer? <gasps> Supposing you called it apostolic work, does that confuse you more? If we called it apostolic work. Now, that immediately raises the question, so um, controversial in some quarters, are there apostles today? Or have there been apostles through church history other than the early church, the primitive church, New Testament church, if you like? Now, you know, as great an authority as John Kennedy insists that there are no such thing as, as apostles today. Uh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones, I think he may have uh, um, revised his, his feelings about it more recently, but I have heard him say that there are no such thing as apostles uh, today. Now, such people say that the qualifications given in, given in Acts chapter 1 rule out the possibility of apostles uh, in succeeding generations to the first. Because there we're told they must have accompanied with the Lord, they must have seen him, and they must have been witnesses of his death and uh, resurrection. Essentially. Now, that's all very well, therefore. Uh, if we were to accept that as our basis, it would be completely uh, okay if, the, if only the scripture itself doesn't con didn't contradict it. Um, in other words, uh, one view is this. There were 12 apostles. They are unique. And then there is the one apostle, Paul, who is unique, born out of time. And some very enterprising theologians have said that when Judas hanged himself, uh, Matthias should never have been put in his place. But the Apostle Paul was the one who should have been the twelfth. And there you have the twelve apostles, a fait accompli. Uh, there is no more to be said. Uh, they are the twelve apostles. Quite right. The, the twelve apostles are unique. And in one sense, we must also say that the Apostle Paul was unique. By the way, the Lord apprehended him and revealed himself to him. He was unique. But now comes the, the difficulty. You take your Bible. Uh, Acts chapter 14, verse 4. But the multitude of the city was divided, and part held with the Jews, and part with the apostles. But who are these apostles? These apostles are Paul and Barnabas. So Barnabas is an apostle. Uh, then again, to be absolutely clear, verse 14, but when the apostles of Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they rent their garments. Romans chapter 16 and uh, verse 7. 
Salute Andronicus and Junius, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are of note among the apostles. It doesn't mean that they are well known amongst the apostles, but it means that they are um, uh, noted apostles. That way. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Verse 23. Whether any inquire about Titus, he is my partner and my fellow worker to you, Ward, or our brethren, they are the apostles of the churches. They are the glory of Christ. Um, now, in some of the versions, you will see the word messengers, but uh, if you look in the marginal, you'll see the Greek is apostles. They are the apostles of the churches. Uh, Philippians chapter 2 and verse five, 25. Philippians 2 verse 25. But I counted it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your apostle, and a minister to my need, your apostle. And... Minister to my need. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 6. Nor seeking glory of men, neither from you nor from others, when we might have claimed authority as apostles of Christ. Now, who are these apostles of Christ? Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Now, there are two further scriptures I can give you. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 13, where we read of false apostles. This is what we read. For such men are false apostles. Now, I contend that if the twelve apostles were absolutely unique, and it was recognized by all that there were no further apostles, how on earth could you have false apostles? If it wasn't generally understood in the New Testament day that an apostle, though the twelve were unique, and Paul may have been unique, but there were those who occupied apostolic uh, office, if you like. Otherwise, how could there be false apostles? Everyone would know who the twelve were, and everyone would know who Paul was. Then again, Revelation, chapter 2 and verse 2. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 2. I know thy works and thy toil and patience, and that thou canst not bear evil men, and didst try them that call themselves apostles, and they are not, and didst find them false. Now, if we were to call this work apostolic work, it may help you. People say to me that uh, there is no such thing as... Um, uh, the apostolic office today or in uh, church history. I, I could not disagree more. It does not matter where you turn in church history, in every single move of the Holy Spirit, there has been the apostolic office, whether it's Martin Luther, Zwingli, Melanchthon, Calvin, um, or, or, or later you come to John Wesley, George Whitfield, or wherever you turn, you've got this, um, uh, uh, well, forget the word apostle. Forget the word apostle. You've got the function. 
These men are not local. They are extra local. They're regional, if you like. God has given them such a ministry. God has given them such an um, authority that it cannot be contained in the local. And so it, it just simply bursts out beyond it. Do you understand? Uh, and if you have not got that, you do not get the increase and the growth and the multiplication. Everything becomes parochial, uh, local, limited, restricted. Uh, and without being unkind within these four walls, um, take as evidence the Brethren movement. The Brethren movement in its beginnings had apostles. What else would you call George Muller, or Robert Cleaver Chapman, or J.N. Darby, or Newton, or the other great men? of the, that tremendous movement, the Spirit of God. But when they began to limit it all more and more uh, to just the local uh, assembly, the thing has become stultified. Today, in our day, of course, if we look in China, the Far East, you have Baba Ni, others. You look in India, you have Bhakt Singh. But wherever you turn, and then I'm only mentioning two names, there are many others, of course, associated with them, but we happen to know those uh, well. But the fact of the matter is these men occupy a function, even if you want to forget the word apostle, or apostleship. You see? And it is that very office which is so important when it comes to this matter of the work. It is apostolic work, if you like. Uh, work that is um, extra-local. Now, <clears throat> the second thing I want to underline this evening and sort of provoke you on is this. It appears from the scriptures that we have read and from a serious study of the New Testament that there were different companies of workers associated with one another in the work. In other words, there was no such thing as one work with centralized authority. We have the Apostle uh, Paul, well, to begin with, we have Peter and John and James. They are associated together, and we find Philip is more associated with them and others there. Then we have Barnabas and Saul. They break up. Barnabas goes his way, and Paul goes his way. And to him are joined Silvanus, uh, Silas, and Timothy. And then we find a whole group. Now, because most of the letters of the New Testament have come from the, from the um, uh, pen, if you like, of the Apostle Paul, we tend to know more about his workers and uh, uh, those associated with him than anyone else. But that doesn't mean to say that there were others, the Apostle Peter and others, didn't have uh, those with them. And if you read carefully their letters, you will find that there are references to some of these names in them. Uh, Peter, for instance, makes reference to Mark. He says, my son, Mark, and uh, so on and so forth. In other words, there were different companies of workers associated one with the other, and generally linked to one or two particularly anointed men. Um, that seems to me quite clear. Out of that comes this. There were different emphases and possibly different methods. 
In other words, it seems to me clear that the Apostle Peter was, um, uh, did not have the same emphasis as the Apostle Paul. And therefore you had an association there, uh, again. But all were governed by one objective, the building up of the local church. No one sought to build up their own church, their own group, uh, their own little uh, uh, nucleus, as it were, in various places. They had only one objective, the local church, the building up of it. We also note that there is such a thing as spiritual authority. There doesn't seem to be any official authority, but spiritual authority. Um, we find, for instance, that um, uh, the Apostle Paul uh, tells, sometimes commands so-and-so to come to him. Other times, as I've mentioned in the scriptures we read, he uh, uh, pleads with them, please come, give diligence, be careful to come. Uh, uh, other times he says he, uh, he sought to persuade one but he would not come it wasn't his mind um, it seems to me that there was a spiritual authority I was talking with Brother Lee a little while ago um, about this very matter and he said to me that um, at one time in China the workers numbered 1,000 there were over 1,000 workers in the work. And he and Brother Nee, Watchman Nee, were talking about it one day. And um, he, how it all began was that he told me that Brother Nee never, ever told anyone to do anything. Now, I don't mean that in the locals, but I mean on really big issues. He never sort of said to them, oh, now look here, you get a plane and, and go uh, off uh, down to Canton. They, they're needing you down there. Or there. He always, when anyone came with a problem to him, he always said, what do you feel? And they would say, well, I won, I think so and so and so. And so he'd say, well, yes, that's it. You do that. And Brother Lee took him to task on it and said to him, you should tell the workers what to do. And Brother Nee said, you cannot do that. You cannot do that. I will never tell anyone, I will never give a command to anyone unless I know that they are 100% given to God. Now, of course, Brother Lee sort of was very puzzled by that. And he said to him, uh, do you mean to say then that all these workers are not given to God? And Brother Nee said, they are given to God as far as they understand. There are only five that I could say, come, and he would come, and go, and he would go. If I say come to the others, they will come, but it doesn't mean a thing. And if I say go, they will go, and, it won't, and they will lose their life with God. But there are just five who walk so before God that I could say come, and they will come, and go, and they will go. Now one of those, of course, was Stephen Carman. He was one of the very few that Brother Nee used to say to him, Stephen, you must go straight away never explain anything to him. He just said, you go. And off he went without another word. 
uh, and so on. Now, that to me is very interesting because we have it to a certain extent in the New Testament with the Apostle Paul. He could have used this authority, but does it help? Do you understand? You see, to be really commanded to do something requires spiritual character. Otherwise, you lose your dependence on him. I'm quite sure that the work of God, it is a wonderful thing when we can move like that together. And yet we are not, there's no, no question of uh, uh, dictatorship or uh, anything like that, but rather really is simply a matter of the government of the spirit. Uh, you can answer back. You can say just what you feel. You don't? You understand what I mean? Uh, again, I just uh, mention it uh, uh, to you. It seems, therefore, that there is not only a spiritual authority, but there is freedom of the Spirit. And this is one of the very important points in the work, that there must be freedom. You know, this is what's so terrible, when we can get into an organization or an organized institution, a mission of some kind, where we just can't be free. If the Lord wouldn't, it wouldn't be understood if the Lord were to speak to us and say, do so and so. We couldn't just go and say, look here, I believe the Lord would have me uh, do so and so and so and so. I remember Fraser of Lisuland. What a battle that man had before he got to Lisuland. And I'm not going to go into it because it might not be kind. But what a battle he had. I remember Mark Bilson. Well, I don't remember him, but I remember uh, the story of him. I knew his wife uh, uh, well. How he was forbidden forbidden to speak and uh, to preach the gospel amongst the Muslims of China. Yet he had a burden that so broke him that at night he used to get on a horse and go over the mount, the hills, down the other side to the, to the Muslim villages uh, to preach the gospel. He used to do his work as headmaster during the day, which the mission had given him to do, and over the hills he went down the other side to try and fulfill, discharge his terrible burden. He caught pneumonia one evening and died. Gave his life for the Muslims, and they were never evangelized. Never. It was one of the unevangelized fields of China. You see, I mean, I, I know a little bit more about China than elsewhere, but I, I'm just giving you examples um, uh, of that. The fact is you can get into an institution where there's no freedom of the spirit. For instance, I'll give you another example. I won't mention the mission at all. Um, about a year or two ago, there was the most remarkable move of God in Portugal. And um, literally hundreds and hundreds of Roman Catholics were converted in the northern part of, of, of Portugal. Um, and then a board sitting at home uh, um, here, very, I don't think one of them spoke Portuguese, um, uh, were deciding all the ways, future methods and uh, people, you know, uh, positions uh, to be occupied uh, in that work. Now, a company came together through the ministry of a certain brother who was, we would call, a worker under the government of the Spirit of God. He and his wife preached the gospel. They saw these people say, they saw them gathered together. And out of their midst, they saw the Lord raising up uh, elders. And they saw one particular uh, uh, a young man whom the Lord had his hand upon in the most peculiar way. The whole church felt that young man should be set aside for the work. 
but because it was a mission. They had to uh, cable the home end and ask for permission there. The board sat and threw out the, uh, the thing. They refused to accept uh, uh, the, uh, the... Now, this was after, according to this brother who spoke to me very fully about it, this was after the church had met for night after night after night Now, I'm not saying that's the same in every uh, mission. You remember what I said on, uh, on, on Thursday. It's not malice, it's constitution uh, that's the trouble. Uh, it's the way the thing's constituted. It's unwieldy and heavy. But in the work, there should be freedom of spirit. So there are two things that are disciplined. Workers, as, there's no such thing as freelancing, just sort of moving, just absolutely freely, just like that. If you come into association with other workers, there's discipline, there's fellowship, there is authority. But at the same time, there is absolute freedom. And uh, uh, we must say this, that if a worker feels something, they must say so. It's incumbent upon them before God to say that they feel they should move here or should they, they should say so. Walk in the light in that matter. Now, what's the objective of the work? The objective of the work is contained in Ephesians uh, chapter 4 and verse 12. It is for the perfecting of the saints. Now, this is very interesting if you look at it. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 12, it says this. Uh, Verse 11, he gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. That's the reason why it's a little difficult to just talk about apostolic work. Um, because there are others in it, but it covers it all. For the perfecting of the saints, unto the work of ministering, unto the building up of the body of Christ. Now, if you look in your modern versions, you will see that these men have been given, have been given to enable the saints to do the work of service for the building up of the body. Got it? In other words, the whole objective of the work is to get the body functioning. Not to take the place of the body, but to get the body functioning. To draw out leadership, to draw out the gifts, to draw out the spiritual qualities that are in the church. Not to take their place and somehow stultify it all, but to draw it out. Do you understand? So you can see how uh, terrible it is when, in, uh, when the work takes the place, uh, becomes an end instead of a means. And then does all the uh, uh, work, in a sense, all together. Uh, and then there is no leadership, there is no original leadership, do you understand? All that kind of thing. Well, um, I just again uh, throw it out for you to think about. In other words, in, in verse um, uh, 16 it says that the body may build itself up. And the whole objective of the work is to get the body to build itself up so that if there is a day of persecution when apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists are just wiped out, the body can go on. <laughs> as simple as that. Just to get everyone moving. 
So this term perfecting the same is very interesting. Notice it's not just limited to planting a church. It's not just uh, limited to evangelizing, as it were, uh, gathering together those who are saved uh, uh, in one. Nor is it just a question of teaching. It's much more than that. It's perfecting the saints, bringing them to fullness so that they can do the job themselves. So the objective of the work is simply to somehow other get the brothers and sisters here and everywhere else to do the job God has called them to do together. Now that may mean, in some areas, planting the church. There is no such thing as the church there. Planting it. Let's not be afraid of that. And secondly, it may be the appointment of the government of the church, sometimes, the recognition of it. Or it can be, as you see from here, the development or instruction of uh, the church. Or it may be the increase of the church. But that is the end. So we can say uh, uh, that there should be three things in the work. Supposing we were now all in an area where there's absolutely no Christians at all. Well, when we would move in, how would, what would we do if we, were, if we were all workers? We would work in and preach the gospel for a while and uh, trust the Lord to really save men and women. And then when those were together, we would gather them together. And then from evangelism, we would go to teaching and start to teach those that were gathered together. And then the third thing is leave them. Leave them. Simply leave them to themselves. Uh, tell them exactly what we're doing. We're, we're not going to stay here and just uh, uh, think, we're going to leave you to the Holy Spirit now. You've got to get on with the job yourself. We have, just as we can't, as Brother Nee put it so beautifully once, just as we can't pray for you and read the Bible for you and witness for you, nor can we arrange your meetings. You do it all. Get on with the job, you see. And, uh, so, well, now, that's the objective of uh, the work. Now, two other things I throw out for your provocation. The first is this. No work should be under the control of a local church. No work should be under the control of a local church. And no church should be under the control of a work work. All right. Now that should present you with some problems. No work should be under the control of a local church. No church should be under the control of the work. Now the work has got centers. Now here we come to the point. Where and when do the two things come together? Where and when do the two things come together? If we say that no church should be under the control of the work, and no work should be under the control of a church, what do we mean? You see, the whole point is this, churches are equal. No church is over another church. 
every single church is equal in status, be it small or large, whether it has a great history or no history at all, every church is equal. You understand? So if you were to put a work under the control of a church, you have suddenly inflated that church. And you have made it responsible for other churches. There's the danger. In precisely the same way, if the church comes under the work, it stultifies it. Instead of the church being built up and expressing and manifesting itself, it becomes a platform for the work. It becomes an appendage to the work, if you like. It becomes the draperies for setting the work off. And that is just precisely what the work is not for. Now where and when do the two things come together? Well now it seems quite clear if you look at uh, the scriptures I've given you uh, and you read right through the book of Acts I think it's quite clear that the work has centres. It has centres. Well, we can pick out two that are absolutely obvious. The first is Jerusalem and the second is Antioch. Now, doesn't that argue against what we've just said? Doesn't it argue for uh, the church at Jerusalem being sort of responsible for the other churches? No, not at all. The church at Jerusalem was exactly equal to all the other churches in Judea and Samaria. But the work was centred at Jerusalem. And that's why you've got, in Acts chapter 15, verse 22, the apostles and elders and the whole church. Why do they say that? Why not just say the elders and the whole church when they were settling a big issue, which was dividing everyone? But they say the apostles and elders... Uh, and the whole church thought it good. And this is what they write, and they wrote it and sent it by messengers to the various uh, uh, churches. Um, In other words, Jerusalem, Caesarea, Antioch, uh, Ephesus, Thessalonica, Corinth, were all equal when viewed from the standpoint of the church, or the churches. But if you view it from the standpoint of the work, Jerusalem was a center of a work in a certain region, and Antioch was the center in another region. And then later, Ephesus became the center of uh, uh, another region. So you can go on. Um, And therefore, you find John and Peter are both apostles and elders. There is no such thing as an apostle in a local church, and there's no such thing as an elder in the work. Apostles are in the work, and elders are in the church. But isn't it interesting? Peter says he is the apostle Peter, yet he writes as the elder. John is the apostle, yet he writes as the elder. James, uh, it's interesting to see, is always called James the elder. He only had local responsibilities. Now, don't think for one single moment that full-time work means that you're a worker in the work. You can be a full-time servant of the Lord in the local church. 
you can also be a full-time servant of the Lord in the work. Now, vice versa. You can be a worker in the work and have an ordinary job. Strangely enough. It's a question of responsibility. Now, all these things which may seem to you at present to be rather dry have a tremendous bearing upon um, uh, ourselves here. Really, they do. Um, because gradually, as the, you know, I've often said to you again and again, the invitations that come to us, the requests that come to us, are beyond any single person to fulfill. It is impossible. Um, of course, some years ago it was easy, because uh, then we only had a few requests and, uh, and I could fulfill those requests uh, reasonably easily. But as Doris can tell you, the, um, uh, the uh, requests we've had in the last few years, why we could have spent the whole year and still not have fulfilled, uh, discharged the responsibilities that would have been ours. And that is the truth. I'm not uh, exaggerating on that thing. Uh, and furthermore, as I think Michael could uh, bear me out in this, if once you go to a place, you can be certain that that means that the invitations will be increased. Generally speaking, I won't say always, but generally speaking, when you go, the invitations are increased tenfold or at least threefold. I mean, that's what happens. Every time you go, you get the queers, oh, please come, please come here, come here. Then everything starts to happen. Do you understand? That's why I have been so loath just in the last year or two to step out of certain uh, uh, spheres which we have been in. Uh, because we know that the, the result will be such an influx of uh, uh, request and invitation. Now, about a year or two ago, I really asked the Lord about it. And there was only one thing that came to me that the Lord has got to raise up a company of workers who can go out and meet that need. That's the only way. Furthermore, I do not believe that the Lord will be able in Europe to build the church, his church, to rebuild his church without such a work. It cannot just be a matter of a local company. That is to put a, a local company to an altogether false position. I'm thinking of areas of Europe where there are not so many Christians and where there are those who are the Lords. So just long to be together. They don't want to be fragmented or anything else. That to me is the only way. Now, what are we to do? If we don't get clear before the Lord on this matter, we're going to have everlasting trouble. You see? Because there will be friction between the local and the wider all the time. You understand what I mean? See, the local will feel that it ought to be consulted and should have the last word in what happens. Now, it is different when a brother in the work brings, um, for instance, his way. What he's going to do. To the church for prayer. But the church doesn't decide what he does. That's for the workers to decide. They must consult together and, and settle before the Lord. This is the way. Do you understand? Otherwise the locals will govern the work. The, 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 the wider. You got it? Clear. These are the problems. And then I do believe the whole thing was confirmed a year ago when the Lord gave us the market garden. 
And there was only one qualification put upon the gift of that garden, that it should not be a garden for the local church, but should be for a worldwide ministry. Those were the words uh, that were the way the, the gift was qualified. Now that came just at the point where this thing was beginning to be such a question in our hearts and my heart and mind as to exactly how we could do it. <laughs> and the only I can think in the end is that we build something at the top there where what is extra local can be uh, centred, uh, where there could be a room for those coming from uh, elsewhere. See, we want to get the whole thing clear. There, there is such a thing as a work which has a responsibility for a region, if it is God-initiated. I am not talking for one single moment of big ideas that we might have, but of what God initiates and what God sponsors, what God raises up. Now, if that is so, there's going to have to be training. You see, I move around, and I, again I can call on one or two to help me in this matter, in their uh, travels as well. I move around, and I see that the, the only way that anything can be done is not by my going here and going there and going there and going there and saying a little here and saying a little there and saying a little there and it was all wonderful and he's gone, you know, and then, oh, come back again, you know, sort of thing. I see the only, only real way that the situation can be touched, basically is by courses from time to time in which brothers and sisters whom the Lord has his hand upon can be instructed uh, in, in, in these ways. That's the only possible way. Oh, I'm not against the, um, the bringing of God's children into fullness and into deeper experience. Thank God for that. We want to go well. We want to see the brothers and sisters everywhere as they keep on reminding us when we move around. You don't belong to Richmond. You belong to us as much as there, which is perfectly right. That's exactly what the work is. It doesn't belong to one place. It may have its headquarters uh, in one place, but it doesn't belong. It belongs to everything, to everyone. And its one objective is the perfecting of the saints. But nevertheless, let's be sensible. By just having wonderful meetings here or wonderful meetings there, are we materially affecting the work of God? Are we materially realizing in a material way, a spiritually material way, um, uh, the purpose of God. I seriously question it. In some places I go, literally hundreds and hundreds of people will come together, but I do not believe that, that the, the numbers that come together mean anything. Frankly, I thank God for the blessing that there is and the lives that are touched and the fullness that people come into, but I still do not believe that God's actual purpose is materially affected. So that's where all this comes into its own. What are we to do? What are we to do? Um, it's, it, it's a problem. Only God can uh, uh, carry us forward in a thing like this. And I believe he is. I do believe he is. And I believe that, that the gift of the ground was uh, the most extraordinary seal um, on, uh, on something. Yet you understand what I mean uh, when I talk about this. You see, there is an overlapping. If a work and the church are together, 
There is an obvious overlapping, a wide overlapping. I mean, we've been defining these, but you can't. It's like a marriage. You can't just tear them apart and say, let no man put asunder what God has joined. You can't do it. The two belong. Yet, you see, we've got to get clear as to where their authority, where their spheres of authority, if you like. You see? You see, the church has absolute rights spiritually to know what's happening in the world and to be able to pray for it, be with it. But there's no right to direct it. You see? And the same, the other way round is quite right as well. The work has every right to say sometimes something to the church. You understand? It's all got to be somehow a kind of marriage relationship uh, where when everything goes right, you don't have to define anything. It all just flows so beautifully that uh, it's only when there's a bit of breakdown there has to be a thumping of the table and a reading of the right act. It's uh, generally speaking, when everything's going uh, well, everything flows. We just know, don't we? inwardly, intuitively, we know where we belong, what our sphere is, what our function is. Um, how far we can go uh, when we are overstepping the mark and so on. I mean, we just know it. Well, I trust that this evening will be, have been of some help to you in introducing this matter. It's not an easy matter at all uh, to speak about, uh, to introduce. There are many, many dangers inherent in what I have said. Um, there are many pitfalls or many possibilities of misunderstanding. Um, but the fact remains that God, I believe the Lord himself, has got to raise up uh, uh, a company of men uh, and women, uh, uh, but particularly men, qualified by uh, the Holy Spirit to shoulder something of this birth. And therefore, it is a vital, it is a vital necessity that we should be able to define what is the work and what is the church, wherein the two coexist and wherein the two are to be distinguished. Well, may the Lord help us. I've said quite enough uh, for one evening. Shall we just bow together in prayer? Dear Lord, we just bring all this to Thee. Oh, it needs Thy covering. And it needs Thy enlightenment, Lord. It needs Thee to take this thing over, Lord, and to speak it into our hearts by Thy Spirit. We want to be preserved from legalism, Lord. And yet at the same time, we want to be preserved from vagueness, from that which is just abstract, Lord, so that uh, we can be pushed into a false position. And everlastingly, Lord, whilst here at any rate, be, be um, limited and paralyzed and no loss and confusion. Lord, help us, we pray. And if thou art doing something along this line, Lord, oh, oh, Lord, take it into thine own hands. And in some very real way, Lord, let us all see that this thing is of thyself.
Lord, we, we, thou knowest our needs in many ways in this direction. But Lord, above and beyond everything else, we need thee to singularly uh, show, Lord, that this is of thyself. And our Father, we do pray that we may all be kept humble, broken and humble, Lord, so that thou canst really use us to the maximum. Oh, Father, we just commit ourselves to thee. Help every one of us, Lord, we pray. And we ask it in the name of our Lord, Jesus Christ.